Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back to the Rare Petro Podcast. It is myself, Tavis Killian, joined by Kevin Olson. In the flesh. If we're back, baby. I shouldn't say we. Kevin's been here, but just like he said, in the flesh, I'm back. I'm sure you know you've been listening to this podcast, but it has been many months since we recorded a Basin Breakdown in person, so I'm very excited, and I say we just get into it, huh? And in the spirit of me being back, we'll start with the DJ and Niall Brer Basins in Colorado. First, an oil and gas company is challenging Colorado's no-drill zone. Colorado has some of the strictest regulations of all the oil and gas producing states, probably outside of California, and one of the rules that the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission has put into place is that no wells may be drilled within 2,000 feet of a house, with a few exceptions. Occidental Petroleum is requesting permission to drill 33 wells at two sites within the limit, stipulating they will prop up 32-foot walls and take steps to neutralize odors coming from the operation. This has, of course, been met with opposition, and the final decision is now in the hands of the COGCC, and I don't see a problem with this. They're looking at what people are worried about and why this rule is in place and saying, hey, we'll try to mitigate that. I'm just doubtful that the COGCC will let them play ball. Well, the thing is, Tavis, I think this is kind of where things become a slippery slope. You know, oh, you let these guys drill on two sites. What's to say that now you can have a a site and, you know, this is the argument that people are going to take. What's to say now that you're not going to have a site immediately next to a school and then now those kids are going to get cancer or something. It's just this slippery slope to where if the CO's GCC breaks this regulation, you know, tons of oil and gas companies are then obviously going to request permission. Um, But that's where things just kind of start getting hairy. So I am interested to see kind of where the direction this story takes, but I, I don't have a good feeling for Oxy on this one, but um, we'll keep you up to date because this will be definitely a, a, a milestone decision um, in terms of what it's going to mean for production in the rest of the state. But up next, let's talk about why a reduction in oil and gas from Russia is actually going to be felt here in Colorado. The downturn of COVID and Russian imports dropping to an all-time low has experts forecasting an increase in the price of gasoline, even in a state such as Colorado, where oil and gas is produced. And I'm sure, as you guys all know, this is exactly what's happening. The price of gas is largely based on the price of oil, and as supply dips and demand rises, an increase in price is inevitable. While bad for consumers, it works out well for American producers who now have more opportunities to export their products to countries struggling to meet their energy needs. And the number I've seen tossed around in this context is 3 million barrels per day. That's how much we'd be short without Russia producing the energy that we've become accustomed to them producing. Sure, you'll probably have countries like China, Iran, maybe Venezuela dealing with Russia because they have no problem. But if the rest of the world is to sanction Russia... That takes almost 3% of the world's production capacity right off the market. And, well, I'd say we're mostly out of COVID at this point, excluding China. And that's energy that is needed. Absolutely. And and we've all seen it. We've all seen prices starting to tick up. So it will be interesting as this conflict continues in Russia, how different sanctions are going to change the price of oil, change the price of gasoline. Um, And also as we get into summer, you know, as people start driving more and more, It'll be interesting to see how the supply-demand dynamic plays out. Next, Colorado is joining an effort to develop a hydrogen hub to make clean-burning fuel for vehicles more available. There is $8 billion available in federal infrastructure funding approved for building several hydrogen hubs across Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. These hubs will be located in each state at key points along the highway system to provide the much-needed infrastructure hydrogen fuel requires prior to becoming a reliable source of energy. 
hydrogen energy has the potential to be a clean energy source. However, it is currently produced largely by fossil fuels. It has caused a chicken and an egg situation between the hydrogen-fueled vehicles and hydrogen infrastructure. The federal funding is hoping to end the debate and start off the infrastructure. What's it going to look like when you have three different gas stations in the same spot? You've got your conventional oil and gas, gasoline, you've got, you know, your hydrogen station, and you've also got your Tesla and generic battery charging stations. I think... I, I, I do wonder if they're all going to be under one roof or if it's going to be, you know, three separate gas stations. And then there's going to be people at each gas station yelling at the others like, ah, I can't believe you, <laughs> ah, Mr. Gang Wars. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> um, but I am excited to see that this project is kicking off because hydrogen is one of those really um, undervalued resources, I think, in my opinion, because it is. It's a very green energy. It's a very clean energy source. But like they said, it takes a lot of fossil fuels to create it right now. So, um, But the thing is, that technology is going to be developed, and we are going to figure out how to make this fuel actually green and actually clean. But the thing is, as soon as that happens, then it's going to take years to build this infrastructure to actually be able to implement it. So I think getting ahead of the game right now is just going to be instrumental in helping this be successful. But finally, let's talk about carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration. Colorado School of Mines, hey Tavis, Let's shout out go. to us, in collaboration with the State of Colorado Carbon Capture Utilization and Sequestration Task Force, released a set of recommendations on how carbon capture can be used to meet the state's climate goals. Some of the key recommendations include CCUS should be used in ways that support new economic opportunities, and the COGCC should obtain the authority from the EPA to regulate CO2 injection wells within the state. Using CCUS, Colorado hopes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030 and 90% by 2050 compared to 2005 levels. And I think that's important, new economic opportunities, because if it's a straight-up cost, well, somebody's got to pay that. That usually goes into the cost of energy, which, as we know, has skyrocketed right now. We don't want that to go any higher. So if we can keep any associated energy costs low and turn it into economic opportunity— I don't see why CCUS can't benefit the state. Absolutely. I mean, this is just, to me, it's one of those, any way you flip the coin, people win. You know, economic opportunities, it's, you know, job growth, it's investing in our state, but also it's trying to eliminate these harmful greenhouse gas emissions to try and start to slow down and and hopefully eventually reverse um, the effects of climate change. So this is one of those things where it's just, I feel like everyone wins and this is just one of those happy-go-lucky stories that we're Thrilled to bring you guys here um, at Rare Petro. So let's send it up to the Powder River Basin, where Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon has recently voiced his criticism of the Biden administration's poor handling of the oil and gas industries during the state of the state message to the Wyoming legislature. Gordon highlighted how Biden's decision to pause federal oil and gas lease sales served to raise inflation, lower stateside production, and increase oil imports from Russia. Gordon made the case for letting Wyoming play its play in powering the country through fossil fuel and renewable energy sources. He ended his message with, quote, innovation, not regulation, is our way forward to give our nation the energy it requires, end quote. And this man has been loud. He's been vocal, and for good reason. Wyoming has plenty of energy resources that we could be developing, not only Wyoming, but Texas and the rest of the United States that has access to hydrocarbon plays. But, of course, The administration is working hard against that, and we're kind of seeing the effects of that right now. So kind of a broken record of a story, but what are they to do? Because 
the White House is not looking to work with these people. But next, two of three fossil fuel preservation bills move on to the second week of the budget session. The coal industry in Wyoming has been, well, declining for the past decade, no secret there. Now the state relies heavily on oil and gas to fund public services. With the fossil fuel industry in decline as well, Wyoming fears it may not be able to meet its population's needs while keeping taxes at a reasonable level. Hence, a number of bills aim to protect the industry, two of which have made it to committee for review. While Wyoming fights to stay alive, they are also expanding their energy production to renewables to stay relevant in the ever-changing landscape that is the energy industry. And, I mean, something that we didn't really talk about, Tavis, is the fact that Wyoming has now missed its lease sales for five straight quarters. I mean, this is huge amounts of money that go towards these public services. I mean, think schools. How are we supposed to fund our schools if we're, we're not getting the income that they have relied on over the years from fossil fuels? And, and it's not just lease sales. It's, it's uh, royalties on production. But as um, kind of fossil fuels start getting phased out, Wyoming's trying to figure out a way to um, ensure that the state meets its goals. But uh, it's working. It's really just butting heads with the Biden administration right now saying, you know, how can we keep up our current lifestyle um, with these ever-changing, you know, energy demands that you kind of are imposing on us. So I am interested to see how far um, that these new bills make it and, and what their end result is actually going to be. But that's all we've got for Wyoming. So we're going to move it to Texas, starting with the Eagleford, which still continues to see good news. Starting off with Targa. So the Gulf Coast Express pipeline is partially owned by a variety of companies, one of those was Targa Resources Corporation, who recently sold their 25% equity interest for $857 million. This will help offset the cost of Targa's recent purchase of $925 million worth of assets from Stone Peak Partners LP. The Gulf Coast Express Pipeline transports natural gas from the Permian Basin to export facilities along the Gulf Coast, partially owned by Kinder Morgan, Altus Midstream, and DCP Midstream. The buyer in the recent Target deal is still undisclosed, but I love to see almost a billion dollars getting traded around, whether that's pipeline assets, equity, or even just producing assets. Yeah, I mean, spending money means growth. Growth means movement forward. So we always love to see that in our underdog Eagle Ford. But up next, let's talk about flaring natural gas. Nearly all of the U.S.'s major sail basins contribute to emissions by flaring or venting of natural gas, with the exception of the Marcellus, which captures nearly 100% of produced gas. Flaring and venting account for a loss of $1.5 million per day at current prices. Not only that, but they cause significant environmental damage. Hence, the recent crackdown by governments to reduce and eliminate venting and flaring. The Permian and Eagleford basins in Texas are primarily oil basins and therefore flare more associated gas. These basins have old infrastructure that is responsible for extra leaking. And so it'll be interesting to see how the attack this gold mine, $1.5 million per day, just that they're letting go. I mean, if they can capture this and sell it, I mean, that just adds to their bottom line. Right. And that's a metric that really drives it home because you can say, oh, however many billion standard cubic feet of gas a day, but everybody knows dollars. <laughs> exactly. And $1.5 million per day. Not, you know, oh, if, you know, we fixed all this, you know, in the course of a year, you know, we'd get one, no, every single day. And it's just, it's cash that's just being quite literally vented to the atmosphere. And lastly, for the Eagleford, Magnolia Oil and Gas Corporation will continue the success it had last year with its two-rig system, 
where one rig drills development wells and the other primarily appraisal wells. Operations will continue in both the Giddings and Carnes counties. Magnolia CEO Steve Chazen expects an 8-9% to production growth rate in the Eagleford Basin this year using the two-rig system. The company is currently refining their well spacing plans in hopes of squeezing out some savings to help combat the rising cost of inflation. And I love it. It's not the most significant company out there. It's not the biggest, baddest player, but they've got two rigs running. It's working out and they're going to keep it moving. Love to see it. Well, I'd love to see that, you know, it's two rigs in the Eagle for two. You know, this is primarily not a very hot basin and, and this company has decided, you know, we're going to stick with, you know, what's working now. And I guarantee you they're seeing the profits now that prices are just climbing like crazy over $100 a barrel. So we'll uh, keep you guys updated. But for now, we're going to move on over to our friends over in the scoop and stack where Devon Energy says inflation and supply chain snags are going to drive up costs 15%. Due to inflation and supply chain constraints, Devon Energy forecasted a 15% rise in costs this year. This announcement comes shortly before the price of oil exceeded $100 per barrel, which will help fund the company's slightly higher costs particularly those involved with labor and supplies such as sand. Devon share prices rose to $54.23 in February with the recent 45% boost to its fixed dividend amount. The company reached $2.9 billion in free cash flow in 2021, a new company record. And this isn't a problem that's unique to just scoop stack. This is all over. A big problem people are having is they can't find steel you can't really drill a hole, complete anything without steel, and also labor's in shortage. You've only have so many people, and in that small market, there might be one, two, or three companies that need that labor. So what happens is, I saw it out in Bakersfield, you get these bidding wars between service companies. Hey, we'll give a 10 cent raise compared to the guy across the street, and immediately what they're seeing is the entire force will quit and go across the street for a 10 cent raise. So they're really struggling to find not only resources, but the manpower. That really is wild, Tavis. Next, let's talk a little bit about futures. The temperature in February in parts of Oklahoma and Texas dropped to single-digit Fahrenheit's, consequently lowering production levels in the scoop and stack. U.S. gas inventories are struggling to recover from the drop in production and rising consumption during cold weather streaks across the state. Experts suspect that the gas inventories will be below 1.4 billion cubic feet at the end of the heating season. To put that number into perspective, Inventories at the end of the heating season are typically above 1,000 billion cubic feet. This should trigger strong summer production to bring inventories back up to average ahead of the following winter. And really, at this point, we're racing against the clock. It's kind of a buzzer beater situation. So we'll see how it plays out. Absolutely. And, and you know, this can tie back into our Texas story. We were talking about capturing that extra gas instead of venting it. This could be a really solid solution to making sure that these inventories don't dwindle down into really dangerously low levels because once the inventories are out, it's not like you can snap your fingers and all of a sudden you just get more um, gas to you know fill the, the void. So um, it'll be interesting to see how they go about, um, you know, Oklahoma goes about trying to figure out how to, you know, keep these inventories stable. But lastly, the Oklahoma Emergency Energy Availability Act of 2022 or Senate Bill 1410, was recently approved by the Senate. The new bill is intended to protect Oklahomans during winter storms such as the one last year at the end of February, which caused a plethora of issues for residents. The bill will, quote, require entities to have three sources of energy available for consumers, end quote. Agencies, bureaus, schools, and other official businesses 
that develop an emergency energy policy will have to include three sources of energy to better be able to withstand winter storms. Sources include a variety of both renewable and traditional sources. And I think this is a great bill because it's not only protecting individuals, but it's also expanding energy opportunities. It's not saying, okay, you have to have solar panels on your roof. You know, you have to have uh, a generator in your backyard. It's saying, you know, three different sources of energy. Let's go, you know, let's say traditional in the sense of maybe oil and gas. Let's go, you know, new school, if you will, say maybe something like solar, and then maybe some in the middle, maybe hydrogen that we were talking about is, is really going to take off. So I think this is um, not only a bill to try and, you know, help protect individuals, but I think it's trying to um, expand people's vision and um, kind of understanding of the energy industry to say, you know, we really need all of these to satisfy our energy needs. We're not going to be able to get there with just one. Couldn't agree more. A diverse portfolio is key. But that wraps things up for the Oklahoma area. We move it on over to California, where I have left. But whether they want it or not, fossil fuel producing companies in California all undertake strict climate goals. California Resources Corporation, which you probably know as CRC, is one company that is going above and beyond to meet and exceed state requirements. The company has goals to reach net zero by 2045 and claims to currently have the lowest carbon intensity production, not only in the state, but in the country. In a world where the oil and gas industry is demonized for its disregard for the environment, CRC is doing its part to turn that narrative around, and who knows, the whole world at this point is kind of struggling to find the energy resources it needs, so if the United States can say, hey, if we need the oil, we produce some of the cleanest stuff, it could bring a lot of business our way. Absolutely. And and I think what's really important here is that um, there's this real kind of, um, you know, opposite sides of the coin uh, scenario that we're experiencing right now. You know, California, you know, a lot of individuals are are very much against, you know, the oil and gas industry, fossil fuels. Um, but what we're seeing right now is this just increased energy demand and not having enough energy there. So I think if CRC can capitalize on this and prove that, hey, look, we are not only responsibly producing this energy, but we are exceeding our incredibly difficult standards. Maybe that's something that is going to really spread across the entirety of the United States. And maybe the fossil fuel industry, really the oil and gas industry, won't be vilified as much. Here's hoping. Up next, big changes could come to California's offshore oil and gas drilling industry following the last major spill in October. A new bill, if passed, would end all offshore drilling in California waters by 2024 in hopes of ending ocean spills and the subsequent environmental damage. The bill would leave room for the current 11 leaseholders to sell their contracts back to the State Lands Commission prior to the ban. This would potentially cost the commission tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. State Senator Dave Min has this to say about offshore rigs. Quote, it's a ticking time bomb, end quote. These leases currently provide the state $90 million in revenue, a drop in the bucket compared to total revenue. I mean, this is this has been the story for how long now? This this infrastructure has operated out there for a long time. I'm not sure what he means by a ticking time bomb. Probably another Macondo situation. I mean, let's look at it from maybe California Resource Corporation's point of view. What if we can develop this responsibly and cleanly? Here's the thing. Yes, offshore spills happen. But they're accidents. Accidents happen in any industry. They happen in every industry. So instead of an outright ban, I think, in that, and that's something that California really struggles with. Instead of trying to get to the root of the problem, they just kind of put this blanket over it and say, ah, get rid of the whole thing. Um, but instead, how about we 
you know, take this as an opportunity to try and be better because if we can figure out how to responsibly develop this energy instead of importing it from other countries where, let's be honest, they don't develop these resources nearly as safely um, in terms of people or environmentally friendly as, as we do here, um, you're just relying on other individuals. So instead of outright banning it, I think that this should be more of a cause of action of, you know, how can we um, be more responsible in the development process and also the transportation process? So um, I don't love this bill at all, but I do think it maybe can kind of open up the door for discussion on, you know, how can we be better? And, you know, as Tavis and I always say, you know, it's always improvement, steps in the right direction, even if it's small ones are the key to keeping this industry moving forward. And I'm glad there's at least one of us on the show that is an optimist because this next story sounds like the true California to me. The more regulations California imposes on the oil and gas industry, the smaller and smaller it gets. This leaves and will leave thousands of industry workers without jobs. Hence, a recent bill is being discussed that will provide funds to support and retrain thousands of oil industry workers. There are currently 112,000 oil and gas workers who would need to find a new job. The problem is, where will they go? And how much will these new jobs pay? Many say that transitioning the workers will now result in them leaving their high-paying jobs for low-paying ones. One proposed solution is for the state to invest in large infrastructure projects, such as a light rail system or offshore wind energy. And I think, I agree, those two would be very expensive projects, but I've seen lots of other people argue for, you know, green energy solar panels on land, stuff like that. But I've seen that the technicians for those gigs just do not make nearly as much. No, not at all. But here's the thing, you know, when you're trained in a craft and when you're trained in a trade and you have expertise in that, you should be paid for that. So I think it's great that they're well aware that, you know, getting rid of the oil and gas industry in California um, is going to leave these people without anywhere to go. So they are certainly going to need funds to retrain these workers. And, you know, how can we um, allow these people to still be well, functioning members of society, um, even if that does get taken away? And then for the last story in California, a tanker owned by Fleetscape, a subsidiary of L.A.-based Oak Tree Capital Management, is believed to have been part of an oil trade with Iran despite sanctions. The U.S. has ongoing sanctions on Iranian oil ever since a nuclear deal with Iran, and the U.S. and other world powers fell through. A U.S.-based advocacy group has tracked the American tanker to the South China Sea, where a satellite photo shows the vessel in what seems to be a ship-to-ship -ship oil transfer with an Iranian tanker. Oak Tree has stated they are cooperating with U.S. authorities on the matter and have yet to claim responsibility for noncompliance with the sanctions, and to be completely honest, this probably is the case. It wouldn't be the first time, and it wouldn't be the last. I think we talked about it way back when. Maybe it wasn't on here, but Monday Madness. Iran is doing whatever it can to sell its oil. They're forging papers. They're doing ship-to-ship -ship transfers. They're turning off uh, transceivers when traveling in areas they shouldn't be traveling while doing these things. So it's likely the case, but, I mean, where there's a will, there's a way, and there's lots of money wrapped up in oil, so can't was, be too surprised. I was going to say, you got to think of, you know, the money behind the motivation here. And, and But kind of like you said, you know, with all these sanctions, Iran's just trying to figure out a way that it can, you know, get its product out there. And, you know, while it, it's definitely shady, I mean, I think the, the real reality of the situation is someone saw an opportunity to make a couple bucks and, and they took it. But enough of California. Let's take it on over to the Marcellus, where there's problems for energy transfer LP continue in Pennsylvania as they are charged with not one, not two, but nine accounts of environmental crimes, all related to their Revolution natural gas pipeline. 
The pipeline burst in 2018, causing a fire that resulted in damage to nearby power lines, homes, and several acres of forest. Energy transfer is being charged with four accounts of unlawful discharge, two accounts of unlawful pollution, and two accounts of unlawful conduct. Over the past several years, Pennsylvania has fined the company for millions of dollars related to similar issues. You know, energy transfer provides an essential service, but they, ooh, they picked the wrong time to do it. If they would have showed up to the party 30, 40 years ago, they would have been having a much more fun time instead of getting their pipeline shut down or dealing with stuff like this. And, and it's truly unfortunate because they're just trying to do their job. They're trying to transport natural gas from point A to point B. And again, like we said earlier, accidents happen. It's not like someone intentionally went and blew up the pipeline and tried to destroy um, you know, homes and, and, and power lines and even the forest, and they wanted to pollute more. But it just so happened that that, that was the end result. So it's unfortunate to see, um, but it's definitely certainly something that they knew going in. You know, This is uh, kind of part of the job, part of the trade. So um, unfortunate for them, but hopefully that they can kind of weather this storm um, and continue to provide America the energy it needs. Next, a multi-billion dollar pipeline that connects the Marcellus Shale to export sites along the eastern coast has finally been completed after a series of setbacks. The Mariner East Pipeline is part of a network owned by Energy Transfer that transports various sorts of gases to refineries and export locations within Pennsylvania. Energy Transfer has been criminally charged with numerous accounts of environmental damage, including fouling residential water sources and spilling thousands of gallons of drilling fluid. With the recent completions of the latest pipeline addition, the Mariner East Network now has a total capacity of 350,000 to 375,000 barrels per day. And really, I'm trying to give the company the benefit of the doubt here because I know Pennsylvania, that area, is not super happy to produce a lot of these energy resources. But they're also a huge company, so there are some accidents bound to happen. Absolutely. And, and it's good to see that you know construction is finally wrapping up. And, and hopefully a lot of these problems that's really plagued this construction process is behind them. But finally, Pennsylvania may soon become the first major fossil fuel producing state to impose a carbon pricing policy. Currently, 11 other states have carbon pricing policies. However, these states make up a very small portion of fossil fuel production. If Pennsylvania were to join the consortium called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, all power plants would have to pay for emissions over a capped amount. Power plants can purchase credits from the state if they exceed the cap amount, then the money would be used directly in clean energy investments by the state. This decision has been met with opposition, but is still making its way through the courts. And I think this is kind of a cool policy because it's 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 a way to ensure that you know um, oil and gas, you know fossil fuel producing industries, you know whether it be uh, power plants or even you know production, can still stay in business. But it's encouraging them to be cleaner and greener and rethink their operations on how we can produce this responsibly. Um, so while, yes, it's certainly going to be uh, met with opposition by um, individuals who think that, you know, it's just the state looking to make another buck, I think it's a way that kind of satisfies both ends of the spectrum. I agree with what you're saying, but the timing could not be worse for this policy because with energy prices up, lots of people are going to look at this and go, wait, you want to require people to buy credits and drive that cost of energy up even higher? This might have to sit on the back burner for a little bit longer until things cool off. But we can't talk about the Marcellus without also talking about the Bakken, so that's what we'll do. Natural gas flaring has recently come under scrutiny for being a source of pollution, and rightfully so. ConocoPhillips, COP, has become creative with the ways in which it can cleanly dispose of its excess gas, 
fueling Bitcoin mining operations. Like we said, Bakken is a place where this gas does not go to waste. ConocoPhillips recently opened a Bitcoin pilot project in the Bakken, through which it sells the gas it would have otherwise flared to Bitcoin miners who use it to fuel their computers. Not only does this help ConocoPhillips achieve its climate goal of ending all flaring by 2030, but they're also being paid for what was essentially a waste of product. And hey, this Bitcoin mining, this cryptocurrency mining, these operations out in the field are only becoming more and more popular. And I think it's just cool. I mean, it's it's two technologies where we're using a waste product to create something. I mean, it's the best of both worlds. And, you know, Tavs and I have talked about this, you know, several times on this podcast before. Um, but this is something that I hope gets implemented everywhere because, you know, cryptocurrencies is not going away and flared gas is not going away either. So if we can just combine those two, why not? For our next story, a large part of North Dakota's plan to become carbon neutral by 2030 is actually a $2 billion power plant that will produce clean hydrogen for use in vehicles and electricity production. The plant recently struck a deal to be supplied with natural gas from the Fort Berthoud Reservation operated by the MHA Nation Tribe. This deal will prevent flaring excess gas and supply the power plant with clean hydrocarbon fuel it needs to produce blue hydrogen. The plant is expected to begin operations in 2027, and after a short period of using sin fuels, would switch to natural gas provided by the reservation. And in less exciting news, more and more of North Dakota producers are agreeing that the state's flat production levels over the past year is a sign of the basins maturing. The director of the North Dakota Oil and Gas Division has also rebranded the Bakken as Mature, and says we can expect production to remain flat for the next decade before it begins to drop. The hydrocarbons left in the basin are becoming increasingly difficult and less economically viable to extract, turning operators away from investing in the basin. The director noted that historically high oil prices, like the ones we are seeing today, spur investments this year. However, he expects modest investments from companies, and I totally see what they're saying here, but I think there's lots of variables being ignored, especially what was 2020 in the aftermath and the increase in pricing now. So sure, I don't think it's a young buck. I don't think it's the hottest new play, but I think there's still plenty of production to be seen from this region. Absolutely. And, you know, with prices going up, that allows companies to spend more money on research and really developing this area. So um, while they say that, you know, the, the Bakken might be on the decline, I really don't think that's quite the case. But to take it on to our last space, and we've got the Permian, the big dog. And hey, they just saw another record. In the midst of peak oil prices, the Permian Basin has set another production record high for the third month in a row. While the United States may not exactly be at its peak, especially compared to previous years, the Permian Basin is doing exceptionally well. Production in the basin reached more than 5 million barrels a day for the first time since 2007, according to the EIA, so things are getting better. The Permian alone outproduced all OPEC members besides Saudi Arabia. Experts confidently project production to continue to rise, especially as the price of oil does the same. Experts also say this quick rebound from production lows during the pandemic is a show of the basin's health. And this is just cool to see, you know, with everything, you know, kind of slowing down during the pandemic and, you know, with oil prices dropping, it's exciting to see that the Permian was really able to dust off that um, and get right back to action. And look at this, three months in a row now they've set production highs. That's just incredible. And and I can almost guarantee you, Tavis, they're not going to be turning away anytime soon. Oh, of course not. Even with soaring oil prices, though, most producers do plan on keeping their production flat this year, including Permian operator Diamondback Energy. While one would expect production to increase due to the record profits and high global oil demand, 
Producers are still recovering from the past two years and are focusing on returns. Recent global events, such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the fallout of the Iran nuclear deal, are raising demand and causing U.S. producers to question their decision not to increase production. Diamondback had said that they're going to keep production at 220,000 barrels per day. However, global pressure may just have to change that so that they can bump up those numbers. And you have to remember that this isn't, like you said, I think it was last month's podcast, this isn't a matter of just turning some valve and letting more oil come out. It takes time, it takes money and preparation to get to the point where you have more wells that can produce. And if the prices collapse, then you have to explain to the investors that, oh, well, we drilled at this price and now it's not economic for us to produce at this. So we actually lost you guys some money. Nobody wants to have that conversation. So I see why people are still a little gun shy. They're just nervous of the cyclic nature of our industry. And for the last story of not only the Permian Basin, but this episode of Basin Breakdown, Devon and Chevron are some of the Permian's most productive companies, and both are beginning projects to greatly reduce their air pollution. Part of Devon's plan will include using renewable energy to help lower their environmental footprint and provide cheap electricity. Devon is attempting to be an industry leader and set an environmental example for the other energy companies. Chevron is working with Project Canary to lower their emission output focusing mainly on methane emissions. Both companies have detailed reports of the respective projects on their websites, and I think that's a great way to wrap up the episode. Prices are up, industry's trying to be responsible, and things are looking bright. Things are definitely looking bright, Tavis. But like I said, that is the end of this episode. We thank you for joining us, and if you're still a little hungry, still got an itch for more knowledge, more news, go to www.rarepetro.com, where you can find, at this point, I'm sure it's probably hundreds of hours of backlogs content. We've put together lots of these podcasts, lots of these episodes of Basin Breakdowns, and many other segments. So be sure to follow this podcast as we've got a new segment right around the corner, and you won't want to miss that. This has been Tavis Killian and Kevin Olson, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Bye.